Welcome to Future Projection, a Baseball America podcast. I'm Carlos Colazzo, joined as always by Ben Badler. It is Thursday, September 21st, as we record this episode. Ben, the playoffs are looming. Uh, there are a lot of retrospectives being written about disappointing teams. Uh, the season kind of feels like it's winding down. It's starting to get cool here in Virginia for me, so uh, there's definitely a feel of, of autumn and fall in the air. How are you feeling? What's been going on with you? Yeah, this is a this is a good time of year. I love just the anticipation of playoff baseball mm. has me has me juiced up right now. Are you are you more interested in this part of the calendar because you're excited about the playoff races, or you're more just looking ahead at the teams who are likely already in, just kind of anticipating watching them in in postseason baseball, or is it some combination of the two? I I think I get more excited about the like like looking ahead to the playoffs and the actual postseason races although that's kind of fun yeah i think i mean i think the races get more exciting as we get a little bit closer to the to the very end but for me it's more just the anticipation of playoff games and the changes to the playoff system from you know the last few years where the the early rounds um or just an early playoff action gets more exciting than I think it used to be. Yeah. So you, I think this got brought up the other day on our Slack about like what your preferred postseason format was. I've really, I like the current format. I liked the format we had before. I feel like both of those formats led to a lot of really fun series and good games. And I also feel like the last few years we've just had very competitive playoff games or haven't been a lot of, blowouts or non-interesting series or world series in general what is your preferred preferred postseason format uh and what do you think about the wild card game the 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 kind of do or die game that we had yeah i like the wild card game i like that you know win or go home aspect of it it creates a like a game seven intensity right off the bat that i think is fun Mm -hmm. for me to watch yeah, absolutely. Especially as someone who's maybe not invested in in which team is winning, it's a lot easier for us to like it than maybe a fan who's like, "Oh, this this is not really like baseball." But I, I liked it as an incentive to try and win the division to avoid that in general, and just the theatrics you get from that that one game environment. Um, before we get into some more team stuff, though, I saw recently that Corbin Carroll with his 2023 rookie season, he he is now the only rookie in Major League history with a 25 homer and 50 stolen base season. That was kind of cool. Um, do you know how many players or how many players would you guess have even had 20 home run and 40 stolen base seasons as rookies? Do you, do you have any guess on that? Of For all time? Yeah, this is all time uh, rookie, rookie players who have at least hit 20 home runs and at least stolen 40 bags. Rookie seasons, I don't know, five, just guessing? It's a really good guess. Four is the correct answer. Four, okay. Yeah, so the uh, I'll go in order of, let's go back. So the, the oldest such season is Tommy Agee in 1966 for the White Sox. He homered 22 times and stole 44 bags. Then in 1977, we have Mitchell Page for the A's. He homered 21 times and stole 42 bags. Uh, In 2012, we have Mike Trout. 
he homered 30 times for the Angels and stole 49 bags. So he was just one stolen base from also joining Corbin Carroll as the only rookies to have a 25-plus, 50-plus season. And then now Corbin Carroll. Pretty, pretty exclusive group. I think the stolen base environment this year leads to some really cool like milestones that players are reaching, just rare clubs. Um, like Ronald Acuna seeing where his numbers are going to place him in, in such rare company. I think he's got a chance to break the Braves' single-season stolen base record, which seems crazy. Um, but I really just love the fact that steals are are more common now. It's just more fun this way. And the statistical buckets you can kind of put yourselves in, just actually watching bases being stolen on a regular basis, I think is great for baseball. I think it's better for baseball, but every time I hear one of those stats where it's like this X number of home runs and then, you know, Y number of stolen bases, I always kind of mm. cringe a little bit because it's like, well, yeah, but that's kind of because they choose the rules to, to, see, yes. to, to increase stolen bases. I mean, we just looking in the last, what, over the last decade, there's very few players who steal who would steal 50 bases in a season. Mm. We've had years where there wouldn't be a player with 40 stolen bases in a league. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, right? just like, in, so... just in this conversation here, Mike Trout with his 49 bags in 2012, that led the league in stolen bases. And I don't think Corbin Carroll is particularly close to leading the league this year. So I do think it's a good point, like contextualizing those stolen bases, depending on the era that you're in. And also like how much do you value a stolen base in general, I think that that'll be an interesting conversation to have. And we'll probably have some really interesting debates around that exact subject. Cause I imagine the Mookie Betts, Ronald Acuna Jr. MVP debate is going to be pretty intense. And I know there are a lot of Braves fans who think like, Oh, look at the home runs and stolen bases. Look, look at those numbers. It's obvious. Um, but I, I kind of tend to agree with you. I, I think we may be, it can be easy to overstate the value of a stolen base, I guess is how I would put it. Um, particularly when, like you said, the reason that they're going up isn't because all of a sudden Ronald Cooney Jr. became such a tremendously better base runner. It's we wanted to incentivize base running. And so that's happened. I think stolen bases are up something like 40%, uh, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> Well, what's made the difference for Ronald Acuna this year is not that he, like you said, not that he even, not even necessarily that he's stealing so many more bases. It's that he's just not swinging and missing as much like, mm. anymore. Like he's cut his swinging strikeout, or excuse me, his swinging strike rate significantly. I mean, if you told me coming into the year you'd have as many walks as stolen bases this year, I, I would have a hard time buying that. <laughs> it's just, I mean, he's always been a, a a phenomenal player but to see the development that he's taken this year mm. being able to cut down on the swing and miss by a pretty significant percentage is i think it's really taken him to to the next level this year yeah just looking at his numbers overall um i mean he's swinging about as much as he has in his career but if you look at the contact the overall contact numbers it's been about 76 percent for his career prior to this season this year that jumped up to 83 percent his overall contact rate if you look at the swinging strike percentage which you mentioned he's always been in the 10 to 12 percent range prior to this year it's all the way down to 7.6 percent 
Um, so it is pretty phenomenal to see that jump. Uh, and what is this? His age twenty six season. Twenty five? No. Yeah, twenty. Yeah, he's so twenty five. <laughs> yeah, lowest strikeout rate of his career. The strikeout rates have always been between twenty three percent. And then he had one season where it was uh, close to 30% in the shortened 2020 season. Um, this year, all the way down to 11%. Like you said, walking as much as he's striking out. Um, and that leads to a career year. So I guess for you, how much does, does the stolen base, the milestone aspect of it, and just the value that the, the stolen bags add to the team, how much does that factor in at all into an MVP candidacy for Ronald Acuna Jr. for you? Like, it, it seems like it's a bit of an, an afterthought and maybe just a fun uh, bit of trivia more than anything for you. Is that fair? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's just voting for, well, not that I haven't. Uh, first, I live in an AL city anyway, so I don't have an NL MVP vote. Um, but just in voting for an MVP, I would look at just the, you know, the runs the sum of the runs created and runs prevented and stolen bases factor into that, but um, nowhere near as much as what you're doing in, in the batter's box. And then, and then defensively, obviously too. I mean, there's just only so many runs you can create. And it also leads the league in caught stealing too. So that that, that (laughs) has to factor in. Not, not that he's been necessarily inefficient as a, uh, a base dealer but it's mm-hmm. it's more something that like you said i think is it adds value but it's the 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 fun that you get from watching stolen bases it's kind of like an outfielder's arm so i think sort mm-hmm. of out very much outweighs the um, practical utility toward actually how many runs it creates or or prevents yeah. in, in, in the case of an arm from an outfielder yeah, on this podcast, we we hate the arm tool. I guess we hate stolen bases now as well. So, but we we I mean, love Acuna to watch has it, gone. Though. We do love to watch it aesthetically. It's very pleasing. He he's gone sixty seven for eighty in stolen base attempts this year. That's an eighty three percent rate for me. That's pretty comfortably uh, in oh, a yeah. success rate range. That that you would be fine with that. Like you said, it's it's high volume. It's the reason he's been caught more than anyone. It's because he's simply running more than anyone. Um, but I think the I haven't looked too much into the other awards at this point in the year. I think over the next few weeks, I'll probably start digging into that more. Again, I don't have a vote for anything, um, but I, I like to do it just to imagine if I was voting for these awards, who would I who would I pick? I think it's useful going through the exercise, like trying to figure out what you value, how you compare and con- contrast players. It, it's fun, first of all, and I think it's useful as well just to uh, have a have a decent picture of the league. Do, do you have a vote for anything this year? No, I don't. The uh, the Boston chapter is a little uh, un- unusual, I think, but uh, no no votes for me. Unusual in the sense that it's it's crowded, or in in the sense that they're trying to uh, not give you a vote ever because they don't want your opinions on things. I wouldn't either, uh, to be honest. If if you were in my chapter, I probably wouldn't give you a vote. Fair, that would be expected. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a combination of, like you said, there's it, there are just so many more people in the chapters of Boston or New York, the, the bigger markets. Mm. And then the way that they, uh, I think at least historically uh, have uh, distributed the votes is only to uh, people at certain publications. So, um, so I, I have no vote. 
I have nothing to vote well, for. Well, well, we have a vote here on our podcast. Maybe at the end of the season, we can do uh, we can run through some awards who we would be voting for. Those those are just as meaningful as the official awards, right? Yeah, I mean, we have our own awards to it, Baseball America. So it's yeah, that's true. So I'm curious about the Mookie versus Acuna Jr. conversation and. I want to kind of dig into that a little bit today. So as of today, we have a few weeks left to go. Ronald Acuna Jr. is leading the league in a ton of offensive categories. He leads the league in runs, hits, stolen bases, caught stealing, we just mentioned. Leads the league in OBP, leads the league in ops, ops plus, total bases. Uh, And yet Mookie Betts, I think, has a very compelling case for National League MVP. He's hitting 310, 410, 590, 595. He's got 39 home runs, only 13 stolen bases. Uh, he's got a 170 WRC plus. That's compared to Ronald Acuna Jr., who is hitting 337, 416, 592. He also has a 170 WRC plus. Uh, Acuna has 39 homers, and we've talked about a lot already. 67 stolen bases. In terms of F WAR, they're pretty close. 8.1 for Mookie Betts. 7.6 for Ronald Acuna Jr. If you use baseball reference war, um, Ronald Acuna Jr. has 7.8, and Mookie Betts has 8.1. Um, so those have actually gotten a little bit closer. I think previously, uh, I might be thinking of two other players, but I thought in the past that the B war had it a little bit closer than F4 did. Um, but where do you see this race? Do you have a favorite now? Do you think it comes down to the last two weeks? I, I admit, I think I've been leaning more towards... Mookie Betts as as my pick if the season was going to end today just because I think they're similar offensive seasons and I would have to give Mookie a, a decent amount of credit for his defensive ability just the versatility that he's shown playing a number of premium positions um, and also just it seems like playing better defense in the outfield than than Ronnie so where are you at yeah I don't think it's like the American League where you have one obvious pick and Otani uh, I think mm. you could go either way it's it's extremely extremely close maybe one of them does something in the tail end of the season that where they just go bonkers and does mm. they do something to separate themselves but yeah offensively it's just about deadlocked like WRC plus OPS plus it's basically dead even um, doing it a little bit different ways obviously um mm-hmm. but i just think the overall offensive production is equal um i do think mookie betts is a better defender he contributes yep. more defensive value so he's saving more runs than acuna is um in the outfield uh, but also acuna has like almost 50 more plate appearances than mm-hmm. betts which you know is not not enormous but it is just something for him so mm-hmm. I, I don't have a strong opinion here i think you go either way i might lean toward mookie bets but it's like mm-hmm. 55 45 type of feeling there yeah somebody has i think to i would it. agree <laughs> yeah i think i would agree it's definitely a year where whoever doesn't win it like their fan base and, and and they'll have a really compelling case as to them being robbed of an mvp award i think both are extremely deserving but like you said i think for me it just comes down to the defense like I'm almost surprised that Acuna has not been a better defender I think I mentioned this a lot earlier in the year and we kind of waved it away because he's having a such a phenomenal season overall it 
it, it's almost a little bit nitpicky, but I think for awards like this, when the race is this close, you, you kind of have to get a little bit nitpicky, but he has all the physical tools to be a really good defender. He has massive arm strength. I think you could argue he has one of the best arms in baseball or, or the best arm oh, yeah. in baseball. Um, he's, he's obviously fast. Um, for whatever reason, he just doesn't seem, I almost get the sense that he gets really bad jumps and reads in the outfield quite a bit. I mean, some advanced metrics like outs above average on, on baseball savant really don't like Acuna at all. They have him as a negative defender. Um, I think they have Mookie as a slightly negative defender as well, but it's pretty significantly worse for, for Ronnie in that regard. Uh, I don't think any of the other defensive stats think Ronald is very good defensively. He's like negative 13 in terms of defensive value on fan graphs, whereas Mookie's pretty much uh, right right at the middle at average. Um, so yeah, it, it is kind of weird to me. I hope that I hope that he can show some improvement in the future because I just don't understand why he's not better unless you think that the stats are, are being too pessimistic on his defense. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, so, so you're saying, I mean, I don't have them in front of me. The metrics have them consistently like 10 runs below average. Cause... Yeah, so on, on StatCast's, they're outs above average uh, range factor, which I think is actually one of the better ones for outfielders specifically. They have him as minus eight i think that's fourth percentile in baseball so they basically are saying he's one of the worst defensive outfielders although this is i think this is the same statistic that said Juan soto a few years ago was like one of the best defenders in baseball and i didn't buy that either um i'll pull up some leaderboards to see like some other players that are in that range um but yeah let me see where he's at on for baseball reference just to see if there's yep. any metric that likes him so baseball DRS, neutral they have him neutral okay so he's neutral yeah, on baseball zero. reference negative on fan graphs and then negative on on savant and again like i do think that defensive metrics are probably the least reliable in baseball like i'm much more confident in, in the offensive metrics we have and the pitching stats we have but even even on the eye test i think that he looks great on throws um but just tracking down balls and 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 route running i, I i've never thought he looks particularly great this year um, let me see the outs above average leaderboard to see like who else is in his range. Um, yeah, see. I do think he has. Uh, he's he's always had great tools and attributes to be a good mm -hmm. defender, um, but it hasn't all quite clicked for him in terms of the defensive production. And I, I think a lot of that is the yeah the the route running the. Hmm. jumps off the bat uh, I, I don't think he's a bad defender necessarily I, i'd probably yeah. be more in line with the baseball reference metrics which average. just have him as like an average defender in right field yeah so just pulling up the outs above average leaderboard right now the top five players are probably the guys you would expect it's a bunch of center fielders brenton doyle luis robert uh, kevin kiermeyer julio rodriguez harrison bader are top five and outs above average if you look at the very bottom, the bottom five, Kyle Schwarber, Jordan Walker, Jerkson Profar, MJ Melendez, Andrew Benintendi. Um, going three spots above that, you have Masataki Yoshida, who we talked about last last week, I think, uh, Juan Soto, and then Ronald Acuna Jr. So Savant has him as like one of the worst 
defenders in the game with the likes of Yoshida, Nick Castellanos is around here, Schwarber, obviously. Um, so that's a pretty strong statement um, to make just considering the physical tools that he has. If you look in the past, I don't think the Savant has ever been kind to Ronald defensively. I'm just kind of trying to pull up his his historic defensive stats as well to see if if it's kind of gone on a pendulum over the last few years or what. Um, but but those are a lot of the names I would expect on both ends of the spectrum there in, in terms of good defenders versus bad defenders. So I don't think the names are, are too shocking. Uh, I mean, it is a little surprising, I would say, to see Acuna grouped as the same in the same level of defender as Yoshida, who mm-hmm. I think is uh, pretty universally <laughs> considered a, a pretty rough defender in left field and whose yeah. like, value has only even gone down <laughs> since we <laughs> kind of last talked about him. Um, so just looking through Acuna's years on Savant, this year again, negative eight, fourth percentile. Last year, negative seven, sixth percentile. Uh, 2021, he didn't qualify. 2020, uh, one, it was a positive in 73rd percentile. So in 2020, apparently he was good. 2019, negative two, 28th percentile. And then 2018, plus three, 83rd. So it has gone up and down. But the last few years, at least, uh, has not, not been too favorable to him. And I, I honestly think that just watching him, he looked like a better defender early on in his career. And maybe a lot of this, too, is... Like, he was playing more center field early on in his career. Maybe it's just an effort thing. Like, he's playing center. He feels like he needs to be on top of it. He's got a pretty good defensive center fielder beside him and Michael Harris. Maybe that's part of it, too. I don't know. Yeah, I think the defense is basically why I would lean bets. Uh, But it's close, and I think the last two weeks could also swing my my vote the other way if I had one. And with defensive metrics in general, too, it isn't even necessarily that they're wrong that – I think there's more noise in it compared to some of the offensive metrics that we look at relative to the signal there. But um, sometimes, uh, you know, you could just have a good uh, or a better or worse defensive season just in terms of your performance in some other years. Like we wouldn't say yeah. there's, there's something flawed with home runs because Ronald Acuna hit 15 home runs last year. And obviously he has yeah. more power than that. So home <laughs> runs must be broken but he just didn't have as good of a year uh, last year as far as yeah, the, that's, he actually performed i like that point quite a bit but in my mind i've always thought of defense as something that's like inherently more consistent than than offense do you think i'm off base there like i just feel like if you're a good defender in general you're going to be a good one pretty consistently and like what might change are the chances you get defensively like how many difficult plays are you actually getting and, and that's probably what creates a lot of noise in these defensive metrics, but but do you think an individual's like actual performance as a defender is just as volatile as maybe their offensive performance can be? Because I would I would not be inclined to think that. I, for whatever reason, I just think the defense doesn't really slump, as the old saying is. Uh, I, I mean, I think the volatility can come from a couple, just the the amount of challenging plays that you're presented yeah. with in you know especially as an outfielder uh, can make a, a big difference um injuries too i mean i think that can play a factor like if you're you know if you're nursing a hamstring injury uh, if you're trying to play through some 
some sort of pain you have an ankle thing that's been slowing you down that's preventing you from getting better jumps off the bat like those things mm-hmm. can can all play a factor um in in it um i yeah i mean i, I think you're right like, especially as an outfielder where where speed is such a big part of <laughs> your value as mm-hmm. an outfielder um that that should be more consistent but it's the the way you actually perform can still have um volatility to it yeah. as well just just the way we see on offense too the the other kind of interesting thing that i'd seen recently it's actually been for for quite a while um with with ronald cunha and a dodger player although not mookie betts is with freddie freeman he actually has stolen 20 bags this year, which I think speaks to uh, sort of the artificial inflation of stolen bases. He'd never stolen 20 bags before. His previous max was 13 uh, in 2022 with the Dodgers. So either the Dodgers wanted to run more or he's getting new life in his 30s with some some extra speed here. Um, but if you look at Savant, and I don't know how these are calculated, but if you look at Savant's base running run value, they essentially are saying that Freddie Freeman has been a better base runner than Ronald Acuna this year, which I really want someone to explain how that works to me because I frankly just don't buy that. Uh, and I know base running is not just stolen bases, obviously, and, and Freddie could easily be a good base runner in terms of um, taking an extra bag, being smart and picking his spots, just being an efficient base stealer overall, like he's 20 for 21. I imagine that that whatever stat, this base running value, like whatever, however it's being formulated, I'm sure getting caught 13 times compared to Freddie being caught just once for 20 bags is probably penalizing him for a little bit. But is there any world where you think that it's possible that, that Freddie Freeman can have created more value as a base runner than Ronald Acuna Jr.? And it, I think it does it take into account double plays as well? Yeah, I, I think so. Again, I, I don't know as much about how these various stats are formulated. I guess I could figure it out. I don't know if that'd be great for the podcast, but I think it's it's double plays. It's how often you're taking uh, going first to third on a single, how often you're going second at home on a single, um, how often you're getting thrown out on the bases. There's a lot of little things and situational plays that I think are, are built into it on top of um, just the stolen base totals and, and efficiency. So I, I could see a player who steals a lot of bags, but but steals them inefficiently being less valuable as a base runner than someone who steals less and does it efficiently. But I feel like Acuna has, like we talked about earlier, it's been high volume at a strong efficiency. And it's just, it's not intuitive at all to me to think of Freddie Freeman as a more valuable base runner. But I, I would be willing to, I'd be open to being proved wrong here. Here. I just need someone to explain the numbers and how we get to those <laughs> the base running value there because I, I don't buy it. Yeah, at this point. for them specifically, I haven't watched their base running or dialed into it closely enough to hmm. to say. Uh, but with I mean Freeman stealing at a ninety five percent clip and he's stolen <laughs> twenty bases this year, so I, I think that's going to be a, a significant part of it. And just the way there are, you know, you can have a uh, a 60 runner who and who's a, a better defensive player than somebody who might be a, a 70 or even an 80 runner. Uh, you can yeah. have a because there's a skill component to it the same way there's a skill component to base running where you could have yep. somebody who's a slower runner who actually does provide more base running value than uh, somebody who is faster. Obviously, I think 
you know, <laughs> like Kyle Schwarber is probably not going to ever <laughs> provide a lot of base running value because there's just limits to what you can do when yeah. you're a you know 20 30 type runner but um but there is a skill component to base running um, and 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 if you're counting double plays too it's depending on the player if you're just hitting if you're grounding into a whole bunch of double plays then that's going mm-hmm. to weight it down too although you could question whether double plays should be counted into a base running stat um, like how much of that is actually your base running or how much of that is really just more what you're doing at the plate mm. and shouldn't necessarily be counted into think, a base running stat. Yeah, I think it I think it makes sense to be counted. Like the weighting of it I I think is open obviously to like how much you want to weight that, but certainly like the fact that someone is simply faster and can avoid double plays adds value to your team. If you have the exact same sort of contact in a, in a same situation, if, if one player you're getting out of that situation with just one out and another player it's you have two, I think that obviously adds value. So I don't mind I don't mind a stat like that trying to fold ground into double plays into it because again, I if, think you, that, if you can that avoid, adds, it's tied say, to I your hitting it, ability, obviously. Right. It's it, so, so there's speed as one component to it mm. but then just how many balls are you rolling over <laughs> or just hitting yeah. on the ground is going to be another factor into how many double plays you're hitting into yeah Kyle Schwarber also uh does not does not grade out well in base running value he's 10th percentile negative two runs on the bases per savant and uh shockingly he he doesn't grade out well in terms of just pure speed by their sprint speed statistic he is uh He's in the sixth percentile. Freddie Freeman actually in the thirty-fifth percentile of speed. I would have taken the under on that. I didn't didn't realize he was moving around that well. Good for you, Freddie. He he always just as a player who looked really slow when he runs. I think it's because he's so big and tall and his strides are, are probably pretty long, but it just looks like he moves in slow motion to me. Yeah, Schorber is a a man of extremes this season, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, what do you have on I it's funny because Ronald Acuna I mean, he's obviously a dynamic leadoff hitter. Kyle Schwarber, you could argue he's a pretty good leadoff hitter, but he's certainly not the sort of classic leadoff hitter profile. What do you think about a three true outcomes guy like that leading off? Are you are you a fan? Do you like it, or, or would you rather have someone who maybe can hit above two hundred in that spot? <laughs> uh, it's yeah. I mean, he he is a he's a valuable offensive player. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know the lineup construction isn't uh super important but to me but um i think I hey you just said you just who... said earlier that acuna getting all those extra plate appearances was a factor hitting, hitting first lets you do that well that's that's as far as you know the value that he has produced is a question of like whether you should hit him first in the lineup versus second or mm. fourth or fifth or sixth um yeah i mean i, I think what's tanked schwarber's <laughs> value this year in addition to all the uh, strikeouts is just that they're making him uh, run around in left field where he just he just shouldn't yeah. be forced to play out there. He should be he should be a DH, but there's nothing he can. Not his fault that he's being asked to to play there. Yeah, it is crazy. I mean, I guess it just speaks to how much he does in other areas of the game. Just basically getting on base and hitting for power that he's led the league in strikeouts the past two years and has been like more than 20% better than a league average hitter by ops plus. So 
Yeah, 45 cool. home I mean, runs, 122 walks. <laughs> that's... Yeah, that's pretty good. Is this his best year in terms of in terms of OBP? Let me see here. Oh uh, no, he said uh, he said better years. Yeah, pretty good one though overall. Three seventy four. It's his. I guess it's his third best year in terms of OBP for like a full season. He also has played fewer full seasons than I expected too. Um, yeah, Kyle Schwarber. He'll be fun to watch in the playoffs. Um. Anything else you want to talk about with, with base running, with stats, with milestone guys, anyone uh, on the major league level that, that's intriguing to you? Because, again, I, I, I really think this is going to be a fun NL MVP conversation. I think award season is fun as gener- in general. We're getting closer to that. Um, but I also wanted to talk about some team stuff, unless there are some other players you wanted to hit on. You want to talk some Padres? Yeah, I think Padres are the talk of the town right about now. Uh, what went wrong with the Padres this year? I think everyone expected them to be a winning team, kind of expected them to be in the playoff race. I know a number of people on our Crystal Ball series at the beginning of the year, I think including me, had had the Padres finishing first place in the division. Uh, Yet again, I think with both the Dodgers and the Rays, I'm just going to put both those teams in first place in their division and expect them to win no matter what is happening until they just don't because... All the talk preseason was that, oh, the Dodgers are not crushing all these projections. They don't look like they're quite as good as they've been in previous years. They're going to take a step back. The Padres are the ascendant team here. They have all these stars. They've got they've got a great lineup. They've got some some studs in the rotation. Uh, it's their year to kind of, kind of finally win the division. That did not happen. We're seeing sort of the retrospectives on on what went wrong, why it went wrong, who's to blame. Uh, the Athletic recently had a piece that was largely, I think, placing blame on the front office and, and AJ Preller for the team's construction. There was a, another piece by the San Diego Union Tribune that was more blaming the the culture uh, of the clubhouse and the players themselves. Um, so yeah, what what went wrong with the Padres this year, Ben? What is your what is your take on? what happened in San Diego because for me I think they they pretty simply just gotten quite a bit unlucky and in, in the way they've scored runs you'd expect them to be in the playoffs and in a winning team um, but that's not what they are right now they are 75 and 78 and they're not going to make the playoffs so what are your thoughts on all of this yeah I mean whether you want to call it uh, unlucky or something else, uh, the facts and and the numbers remain the same, which is that the Padres record does not match their Pythagorean record based on their runs scored and their runs allowed. You said like what they're 75 and 78. Um, their Pythagorean record is 85 and 68, which yep. if would be the fourth best uh, Pythag in, in the National League. Because uh, yep. they're sixth in baseball in terms of lowest runs allowed per game, uh, they're tied for thirteenth in uh, runs scored per game, and and obviously like there's park factors there too. So like it's eighth in OPS plus, or they would drop to thirteenth in ERA plus. But the the difference between their actual record and the record that we would otherwise expect based on their runs scored and runs allowed is ten wins, which is the biggest gap in baseball, either positive or negative uh, as far yeah, as a discrepancy. You, 
You have to go basically back to the 20, I think it's the 2014 A's to find a team that's been as unlucky as they were in a season. So Is that right? Just there's never been that big in, of a... in in terms of baseball references luck stat, which is measuring the difference in their actual win-loss and their Pythagorean win-loss. I remember I went through and checked the other day just to see. I was basically sorting that stat and going back in years. I'll do it again just to confirm, but they're minus 10 in that, and you really don't have many double-digit negative luck teams uh, in the last decade. But yeah, I'll, I'll go through it again just to make sure, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the 2014 A's who were a winning team um, and made the playoffs. They just were a lot better in terms of like run prevention and, and run production than their record would indicate. Uh, the Padres are, are kind of in that scenario where their luck is the difference in them being in the postseason and everyone continuing to be excited in them and uh, calls for, for front office changes, for culture changes, for, for narratives on why they didn't win, for situational hitting conversations. Um, and we can get into this more, but I really just don't buy a lot of that. I think it's they simply got really unlucky in where their runs came in games. I mean, we haven't even mentioned it yet, but their their record in extra inning games is 0 and 11. Their record in one run games is 7 and 22. Uh, and I just don't really buy the fact that they are they somehow forget how to hit and how to prevent runs in those situations. I just think that they got unlucky and that happens sometimes and it sucks. But I think if you run this team back a year from now and you don't make many changes, they'd be quite a bit better than they were this year. Yeah. I I think ideally we would be able to untangle how much of their failure in those one run games or those extra inning games as well uh, is Mm -hmm. how much of it is a product of luck, how much of it is a skill issue. Uh, But it, it is challenging to be able to, separate signal from noise here I, I think normally we would look the first thing we probably look at is bullpen i mean they have you know, josh Hader. they have some other solid arms behind him but i don't know that they have a particularly deep bullpen uh, and in today's yep. game when your starters are going five <laughs> six innings uh, if you're playing into extra innings you're probably working deeper into your bullpen mm. so th- you could say that there is some skill element uh, at play in terms of roster construction, is it enough that they should be zero and eleven in extra mm-hmm. inning games? Though I, I don't know. I, I think there is a lot of randomness involved. Do mm-hmm. that, uh, and then if you go so on Baseball Reference, you can look at what they what they're hitting in what they call late and close situations. So mm-hmm. they're hitting one ninety four, three hundred four, three fifteen for a, a 619 OPS, which is 26th in baseball in those situations. Obviously, that's way below what they're normally, uh, where they would normally rank offensively. And then what BREF defines as a high leverage plate appearance, same thing. Their offense is 29th in OPS in those high leverage situations. So again, like how, how much of that is skill versus uh, luck or chance yeah uh, is this is something that gets hard maybe but like yeah I, I just think there's a lot the, of randomness involved. i agree and i feel like every time these topics come up there is a camp of people who think it is about skill and it is about approach and you need to change your approach in these scenarios you need to put the ball in play more and then there's a camp that says you know we there have been many people who've studied this like 
being clutch is not necessarily a skill. It's more just randomness. Like there's, there are very few examples of players or teams whose clutchness has carried over year to year. It's more just up and down. And are you, are you getting lucky in those scenarios for me? I, I'm, I tend to be more in that camp. Uh, I think that you want the best players in those scenarios, regardless of their um, reputation for being clutch or unclutch. Uh, I think it's just small sample size issues that creates a lot of that randomness and a lot of that noise. Uh, but I did go back through and just look, looking at that luck statistic. So right now, the Padres are minus 10. Um, you actually have the Los Angeles Dodgers in 2018 who are minus 10. They won 92 games and lost 71. And then in 2014, you get the Oakland A's who are minus 11. Uh, they won 88, 88 games and lost 74. But based on their runs scored and runs allowed, they're expected to be a 99-win team. Uh, that Dodgers team was expected to win 102 games. And this Padres team, uh, you would expect them to be 85 and 68, which in the AL West means you're competing for a playoff spot. Uh, and I think in the NL West probably would be this year as well. So the, I, again, you could, you could make a case that they're one of the least lucky teams in the last 10 years in baseball. And I think for me, it's as simple as that. And I think we try to explain away a lot of the reasons why it's happened instead of just saying, you know, the players ultimately didn't perform in those situations for one reason or another. You can you can blame it on an approach difference. I would say it's probably just bad luck in, in small samples. Like, I, I think even if you were to say that, oh, the team wasn't constructed to win in these scenarios, they didn't have the bullpen depth. If you look at their bullpen overall, I think they're roughly middle of the pack at worst in baseball. So you wouldn't expect an 0 and 11 stretch in extra innings or 7 and 22 in one run games. I think regardless of the criticisms you might have on how this roster is constructed, they still should they've played better than those records would indicate in those scenarios. And I think if you just rolled the dice again over a full season with no improvement, they would just be better because they would get luckier. Like the runs would fall in such a way that that weren't as detrimental to their results. I think the Rangers are a pretty good example of this. The first half of the the season, everyone was talking about how clutch they were, how great they were in these situations. But if you cut, I think Ben Lindbergh said this on a podcast recently, if you if you basically look at the first half of the Rangers with their clutch stat and then the second half, it's basically like the exact opposite. They were terrible. So did they forget how to be clutch? I don't really think so. I think it's more just randomness. Maybe Wyatt Langford took somehow all of their skill <laughs> in the clutch situation. He stole the clutch gene from them. Well, Wyatt Langford, you know, he performed in the College World Series, so maybe he does have that clutch gene. Dude, he, he's been ridiculous <laughs> since signing. Well, obviously before signing, too, but just the way he's, I mean... Triple A. Does he come up? Do they need him now? Evan Carter's I mean, up. Everyone bring needs, up, bring everyone up Wyatt needs Langford. a Wyatt Langford, right? Yeah. What is he hitting? 367, 478, 693, 10 home runs, 12, 15 doubles, more walks than strikeouts. He's up in Triple A. He's already got four hits in two games in Triple A. Yeah, he's a monster. Bring him up. I'd say bring him up. He's got. He's already got some postseason experience this year, so that'll help. So do you lean more towards for the Padres? And, and we can move on from the Padres if you think we've done enough Padres talk. But 
again, one of these pieces puts a lot of blame with the front office and AJ Preller. And I think some of the criticism of Preller is kind of funny. Uh, and then the other piece puts some of the blame towards the culture and the players. And I, I think the culture, I think we can talk about both these, like your thoughts on Preller and his various strengths and weaknesses, uh, that are perceived in the industry. And then, and then also the clubhouse culture. I think we pretty much have the culture narrative backwards. Every when we look at losing teams, we love to blame the culture. But I don't think anyone is saying, "Oh, the Braves are so good this year because they've got a great culture," or they've got a great clubhouse. I think one follows the other, and we have it backwards. And it's it's kind of silly to me when we try and blame a team that's disappointing on on having a poor clubhouse. I think if there are any clubhouse issues, which again, both these pieces seem to say that. They're not really major clubhouse issues here. It's because they're they're not happy that they've disappointed relative to expectations. They haven't played as well as they wanted to. There are quotes from Manny that I wanted to to mention here. He said, "Machado, yeah, yeah, Manny Machado, uh, who who everyone is saying is is essentially the clubhouse leader, and I think Machado gets a lot of flack because he's not like the leader that everyone wants him to be. He just wired a little bit differently, but he said." Um, we just didn't perform well. It goes back to where was this last year? We did the same thing last year. We did not change one thing. The only thing that changed was that we didn't perform. I did not perform. We did not perform. That's what it is. There's nothing else to it. We didn't perform. When you perform, everything is great. Everything is gravy. When you don't, you've got to deal with the consequences. Uh, he went on to say, last year we made it to the championship series. We have the same group of guys. We have the same clubhouse. I mean, a couple guys here and there that are mixed in, but the majority of the guys are the same. None of these conversations came up last year when we were winning, but when you're losing and there are expectations and you don't perform at the highest level, this is what happens. And I thought he was spot on with those because I think it's exactly right. Like, It's the same clubhouse a year ago. He's directly saying that they were doing exactly the same within the clubhouse last year. The only difference is the results, so you don't have people asking questions about trying to find a reason for why the performance is what it is. So I I kind of just hate this clubhouse talk and culture talk because, again, the Mariners, I think, early on this year, everyone was saying, oh, those guys don't have a great clubhouse. They were losing. They started winning, and all of a sudden those questions go away. I think it's as simple as that. All these guys are professionals. They all want to win. No one's going to be happy when you're losing. If you're winning, that solves a lot of issues. Yeah, I, I think just in – just speaking in general, when you have a losing team or a team that is not living up to expectations, one of the reasons why you hear talk about clubhouse dysfunction is because it's an explanation that is just so attractive to the way that our brains are wired. And it's especially appealing to the people who, um, to the people who, who write or talk about sports yeah, for a living because our brains like stories and writers love stories. They love to tell stories. Absolutely. Uh, and and when a team is not performing in a way that matches expectations, pinning the and I'm not speaking to these stories in particular, just just in general, mm-hmm. uh, but but pinning the source of those struggles on clubhouse issues or or interpersonal conflicts makes for an extremely compelling story uh, especially because it's not a it's not a falsifiable claim it's not something you can exactly quantify and and telling stories not that everything that can be quantified is all that necessarily matters um, and, and it could also be the case that there are like in fact in the case of the Padres I'm sure there is <laughs> uh, uh, 
discord between uh, the front office and the manager, or but you know, doesn't seem like Bob Melvin particularly likes AJ Preller. <laughs> I don't, and I. It seems like the feeling is probably mutual there, right? But um, just in general, like you know, telling stories about people and about personalities and personality conflicts is a lot more compelling as a story than running the numbers to try to study why a team's <laughs> record doesn't align with their raw run creation or uh, or run prevention. Hey, some of us are nerds and like looking at those numbers, Ben. Some of us enjoy those too. But I think you're spot on. I think I think we love to create narratives to try and explain things and, and make make things um, make sense we can use them to try to explain away things when it doesn't really match up. And I think the simplest solution is sometimes things just, sometimes you just don't perform and there can be no other reason for that other than in the moment you didn't, you didn't perform and it doesn't have to be some sort of culture issue or approach issue. Like I know Juan Soto had some quote about how they need to, have better approaches in those late and tight situations. And I think that's maybe easy for Juan Soto to say as someone who has one of the best approaches in the game just overall. Um, but sometimes you just don't hit as well in those situations for whatever reason. You mentioned the discord between the front office and management as well. I thought it was interesting to hear some of the criticisms um, that, that the industry put on Preller because I, I thought they were kind of funny. And I was talking to a scout the other day who was like, man, the, the criticisms for AJ Preller seem to be that that he worked too hard and cared too much about baseball. So what what is your what are your thoughts on AJ Preller, what he's done, his job? Uh, I love the fact that AJ Preller is running this team. Um, again, this is this is probably my bias because I'm I'm doing so much amateur evaluation and, and going to scouting events and Preller is one of the few GMs who has kind of an outsized um, presence at those events. So I think it's awesome that, that there's a, a man like running a team who, who likes to just get out and scout. I think he's, he's a unique figure in baseball and I like the fact that we have those. Uh, and I also just, I really appreciate the amount of value that the Padres in general place on their scouts and, and their scouts opinions in an industry that there are so many teams that are going in the opposite direction. Um, I just think that's good for the game. I think it's fun for baseball. Uh, but what are your thoughts on what Preller has done, his his place in the game, the criticisms that maybe you can throw at him for, for constructing this roster, how he's gone about putting the team together, trading away prospects? Uh, I think there are probably some real criticisms of him, but but in general, I'm a fan of, of Preller, and I would like to see him win because I think he's just a fun GM in the game. He's definitely polarizing. Um, that's always been the case going back to his days as uh, Rangers international scouting director, people who really dislike him, other people who have worked with him who are staunch, staunch loyalists uh, toward him. Uh, and I think there are legitimate critiques you can make of uh, what he's done as a GM uh, critiques about the major league roster management uh, signing Eric Hosmer to an eight year, $144 million contract, I think would be yeah. uh, a big one. Um, <laughs> you know, and he's been there a long time. So there's a lot of moves like early trades when he took over uh, trading, trading away Trey Turner mm. uh, on, you know, obviously on the other hand, he traded for Fernando Tatis jr, which is one of the, yeah, greatest steals of a trade of 
of the century. <laughs> I mean, maybe in end up in baseball history uh, all time. Um, you know, they, they've had the, so I don't think anybody has questioned what they've been able to do as far as building through scouting and player development, right? Like they had the number three farm system in baseball uh, entering 2018. Then they were the number one farm system in 2019. Uh, the next year was number two, number three after that. Um, e- even now after trading away so many players, uh, you know, trading away, James Wood trading away Robert Gasser, yeah. uh, you know, Robert Hassel has kind of fallen off. Like, they, I mean, they've traded away just so, so many players, Mackenzie Gore, CJ Abrams. They've literally in the last like three years, they've traded like a full top 10, maybe top five, like caliber farm system away. And we still have them ranked seven on our midseason update, which I was, I was kind of surprised going into those meetings that they ranked so high, but given the impact talent they have at the top of the system, it's still pretty impressive to your point. Yeah, the depth falls off obviously pretty hard after about number ten or so. Um, but they just do they do keep replenishing Ethan Salas, like obviously internationally they're, they're gonna get another guy probably on January fifteenth, uh, Leo Dallas DeVries, uh, maybe the best player uh, in the international market for the upcoming signing class. So they you know, for, for a team that hasn't been picking at the top of the draft in in the last several years, um, they've they've managed to keep it the farm system really well stocked. A- at the same time, teams that have the number one farm system in baseball that generally leads to World Series championships or World Series appearances or, or a run of playoff appearances because you just have so much young, uh, cheap talent in the organization, and and you still need to make additional moves to take the the next step but uh, part of it is just not screwing things up uh, and, and I think the Padres record on that is mixed I would say like that you know two playoff appearances in four years and then there's you know, like we're talking about debate about how much of uh, this season is uh, you know a skill issue or a roster management issue versus just uh, bad luck. So I, I think if you know if you wanted to say that the Padres should replace him, there's there's an unreasonable case to be made for that. But um, I, I I could see bringing him back as well based on what they've been able to do in the farm system. And if you really believe that uh, you know this team is going to be strongly positioned again for next year if you just believe that regression to the mean is going to kick in um, and be a factor toward helping them um, uh, get back to the postseason next year. Yeah. Um, AJ Preller is the fourth longest tenure GM in baseball at this point. It's just behind Mike Rizzo, who was recently extended with the Nationals, John Mozielak with the Cardinals, and then Brian Cashman with the Yankees, who has essentially been running the Yankees as long as I've been alive. Um so it is, I guess, kind of interesting to think about Preller being um, tenured that long. I don't, in my head, he he hasn't been up there at the top, but I guess that is more a point to like how quickly front offices shake up in baseball, uh, and the fact that you really just don't have a ton of guys who've been running the ship for such a long time. But yeah, what what do you think is the biggest area of weakness for Preller in constructing a roster? Because there there's a lot of criticism that that he's not able to 
he's able to bring in these stars by trading away talent. Um, but then like that stars and scrubs approach doesn't work. And maybe he needs to do a better job of kind of adding in some, some role players to fill the gaps a bit more. Do you think that that is like the one area that you clearly need to figure out, maybe have a little more, or, or is it like pro acquisitions? Like, do we need a little bit more raise success here in, in targeting, uh, players at the big league level to, to kind of help your core? What is like the one area you think needs to improve on if, if Preller is going to stay there and have success with the team? Because again, I think like if you just run it back next year, you make the playoffs. Once you make the playoffs, anything goes. So I'm probably more towards the optimistic side, but that, that's that been my take for, for all of these front office shakeups and controversies as well. I think <laughs> I would be a pretty lenient owner at this rate, I guess. Yeah, I, I think there's some depth issues i mean matt carpenter got <laughs> matt carpenter got a lot of playing time for for this team uh for some reason uh you, you could just see some other players deeper down their roster that um some teams that are consistent playoff teams that, that you mentioned don't seem to have um but i i also run more in the camp of like like I, I think if you, you can, I don't I think you just necessarily run back the exact same team next year. There are going to have to be some additions that you make. Like the core of this team is still mm. pretty strong, I think. Um, yeah. I think Manny much like Manny Machado has been solid this year, but he hasn't been the superstar, like five six win player that he's been Mm -hmm. before and it sounds like he's been playing through pain playing through an injury yeah uh, according to him for at least the last three months sounds like he's looking at having elbow surgery um so i yeah i i think you i i think they're i think they're one of the best position teams um i mean um, among non-playoff teams to get back to the the postseason mm. next year. Um, it's interesting just, you know, hearing a lot of the criticisms too, you know, some of which I think are, are fair, but like I, I typically when we, you know, hear about a team that is losing so many close games or is not performing up to expectations that people had on that team coming into the year, like it typically that would be associated or a lot of uh, criticism would be placed upon the manager mm-hmm. yeah. of that team. Or, or if we're talking about, you know, a team's approach in, you know, late in games, like that's more on the hitting coach or, or the manager, at least yeah. typically. And I'm not saying they are to blame, but it, it definitely stands out that doesn't seem like anybody, at least <laughs> uh, in the media is, um, is, is doing that yeah it definitely seems like like bob melvin maybe has a, a better reputation a, a less polarizing reputation i guess you could say uh mentioning preller just being a polarizing figure it does seem like preller has reached this sort of hot seat status uh where people are kind of always wondering like how many chances is he going to get um whether or not like that's actually the case in the owner's box in san diego like seems irrelevant but it, it does feel like it's more a case of like Preller is such an outsized figure in, in the baseball landscape and people are always 
like waiting for for these bold moves to pay off for him and, and waiting to see what's going to happen. I think if if this was a team with maybe a less polarizing GM, you, you maybe would have hear, heard more about some manager criticisms. I wonder how much just like the gravity of, of Preller himself steers the stories away from that. Yeah, I think it, uh, and clearly there's some uh, conflict between the manager and the GM on on this team. Um, so I think that probably plays a um, <laughs> a role here. What do you too. think? And, what do you think about a manager's role today in creating creating a clubhouse culture? Like, how important do you think it is? I think that's one of the areas where you mentioned earlier. There are some things that you can't really quantify, but do matter. I, w- I would think that is something that falls solidly into that camp. And I guess, do you think there there can be a real issue with the micromanaging aspect of it? Like, is it a case where you think Preller maybe just needs to be a little less hands-on with some of the day-to-day game prep things? Because he does seem so intense uh, in his own right that he wants everyone to be as intense. That seems to be like the criticism of, of sort of the game prep uh, scenarios. Um, well, you know, people don't all have to get along at work or on a team for that team to. It's definitely true well. with you and I, Ben. Right. We still make podcast magic happen every week. Well, <laughs> not every week, but every week. <laughs> hey, every week lately. Yeah, every week lately. Uh, during the summer, it's a little trickier. Um, that's more of a clubhouse issue, I guess. But, um, <laughs> but I you know, certainly that uh, it's more more so maybe for the actual athletes on the field where it's. Like going again, like going back to like the clubhouse stuff. Like, yeah, if 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 you're if you're a basketball team, yeah, that's gonna that's a sport where teamwork is a much bigger factor, yeah, than baseball, which is a team sport but is heavily dependent on the individual batter pitcher, yes, matchup. Uh, maybe more so for a catcher with his relationship with a pitcher, like if they really you know, can't stand each other and just can't get on the same page. Um, that that's going to be a bigger factor. Um, but you know, yeah. But in terms of how an offense works, you don't really need to be in sync with the batter hitting behind you. If you, if you all are just good, if you all just perform in your own jobs, the team success will follow. Yeah. And as far as the dynamic between just in general, again, cause uh, I'm not in San Diego, um, and, and even if you are, frankly, like a, a writer in San Diego, I'm not sure you'd even have the uh, full um, dynamic uh, inside of, of these conversations that's going on between the uh, in the, the manager's office and, and the front office. But the, the best teams have front offices that provide significant input into the decisions that maybe 20 or, or 30 years ago would have fallen entirely under the purview of the manager, but there is so much more data. There is so much more information available now that front offices need to be involved in that process for pregame preparation, uh, for, for game planning. Um, so if I'm a GM and, and if the manager, and again, I'm not saying this is the case here, but just speaking more in general, but if the manager is being, stubborn or unwilling to listen to or implement uh, the information that the front office has prepared to help the club match up uh, for for their opponent 
that night or, or for the upcoming series or month, um, that would be that would be pretty alarming. Like I, I, I think that would be detrimental toward the club to have a manager acting that way. I'm not saying that's happening necessarily in in this case, but it, it certainly historically has been the case where you have managers and front offices uh, butting heads because the the manager just wants to do things his, entirely his way and not necessarily listen to all of the information uh, and, and data that the the front office is bringing. And, and they don't even necessarily have to agree on on everything either. Mm-hmm. Like you can have, a, it, it's probably better that you don't always agree on everything. You, you want both yeah. sides to, or you just want everybody involved to feel comfortable raising their voice and, and presenting their honest perspective uh, about things. But, uh, you know, you certainly don't want one side being entirely closed off to, um, you know, to, to the information that the, mm. the front office is being presenting. Yeah, absolutely. You definitely need that, that open communication, open environment uh, to have success. So, I mean, that's the Padres story. Everyone's going to have their take on it. I'm sure there will be more things written as we kind of close down the season. But, I mean, how optimistic or, or pessimistic are you about this team next year? And I think maybe that gets to a larger question of, like, who are the 2023 disappointing teams or or losing teams who you feel most excited about moving forward, whether that's immediately next year, um, like bounce back seasons, or just teams who are who are not winners this year, won't be in the postseason, who you like uh, moving forward. And maybe we can just kind of step through each team this year with an under 500 record. But if there are specific teams you want to just jump to immediately, by all means, uh, have at it. Yeah, I, 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 th- I think the Padres would be mm. my main team that I would say if, if we're take, talking, you know, 500 and under teams, um, they would be one. I think the Yankees would be another. I mean, we're talking are they, about it. Are they? I think they're, I guess they could be under 500. They're like directly at 500. Right well, they're now, at 500, record, yeah. Right? Yeah, like I would, I would include them. Like I would okay. probably include the Giants too if you want to mm. uh, take, take them for – example like they've been okay let's let's step through each of these individually so yankees we'll start with the al east yankees at 500 right now they could easily be under 500 i guess even if they are 500 we could still count them so why are you well they could easily be over 500 what do you mean (laughs) yeah i'm saying just just to count for this like to count for this conversation they're 500 now so they don't necessarily have 500 500. and under sure yeah yeah so what about the yankees has you i guess more optimistic for them moving forward other than the fact that they seem to always be a competitive team yeah, I mean, I think that's that's one part of it. It's just <laughs> this is like, and I and I understand why fans are, you know, Yankees fans are uh, upset with the team this year, and <laughs> and that's you know deservedly so. At the same time, it is what the first time in how many years, six, seven years that they're I'll, gonna. I'll pull it up and see, but yeah, the they're season. they're not used to missing the playoffs at all. Uh, let's see here. They have made the playoffs every year since 2016 would be the most recent season where they didn't make the playoffs. They also missed in 2014 and 2013, uh, 2008. And then outside of those years I just mentioned, every year since 1995, they have been in the playoffs in some capacity. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you still have, you still have Garrett Cole. You still have Aaron Judge. I expect Anthony Volpe to take a who's been pretty good just 
as just as an in terms of the overall value, even though offensively hasn't been hmm. great this year, I, I would expect him to take a step forward. Yeah. Torres, you know, very productive player. Uh, there are definitely some. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know what you do with Stanton at this point. Um, maybe, maybe you have those... a plan a retirement ceremony and then cancel it. Maybe. Yeah, trade him to the Dodgers <laughs> for nothing, and then they turn him into a yeah you know, little, Jason little Jason Hayward, Hayward route. Yeah, I yeah. mean Cubs fans had to be pissed about that one. Although Cubs also got Cody Bellinger, so maybe it's a little bit of a trade for them. Yeah, true. That's true. Um, but I mean, look, yeah, no, there's definitely like red flags <laughs> all <laughs> over that roster. But if we're talking about non-playoff teams, it's like I think I think they're still pretty close, and they certainly have the resources where. Yeah, um, and 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 the farm system where I think they have a lot of unhyped. I mean, Jason Dominguez is a, a extremely hyped prospect, and and he looked really that? good. <laughs> he looked really good in his his debut before getting injured. But they have a lot of really solid players that I think can play great complementary roles to help kind of improve the maybe like the floor of what this team's capable of. And it sounds like they also have some lower level um, names that maybe aren't super. Uh, well known at this point that that could pop in the future as well so that it seems like they've got a solid farm system to help kind of build around this core but players who have trade value too like i don't know if they're gonna like you could keep spencer jones you could trade him i think he would have you know quite a bit of trade uh, value for we need a we need to line up with spencer jones and aaron judge in it i'd like to see that and stanton yeah well well we, we talked about stanton we're maybe not as high on that one yet but well just as far as gigantic be, human it'd beings. be fun to see yeah be fun to see a notoriously uh, non-physical Yankees uh, lineup with some big guys in it. Yeah, um, but no, I, I think they have a lot of trade chips. Where if they they make the right moves, they they have a lot of room to maneuver this off season. But at the same time, like you know, <laughs> I don't think they did a, a great job of it last mm. year with that. So um, some some skepticism there is is fair. Okay, uh, how about the Red Sox? Would they be a team that you were excited about moving forward? I think everyone in this AL East, uh, it's obviously like the toughest division in baseball for me, but thoughts on them? They've got a lot of turmoil going on in terms of who's running the show. They've got uh, a developing farm system. Maybe you need some pitching. Um, thoughts on them moving forward? Yeah, the pitching is it's going to be a big one for them. Um, like Brian Bayo. He's, you know, had a solid season for himself. Good homegrown arm. Uh, I don't know where else they're going to get pitching from. Um, uh, early starting pitching. There's things to like, I think, uh, in parts of their bullpen. But mm. the the starting pitching is is a big concern. Um, you know, full year of Tristan Cassis. Uh, obviously, like Devers is there. Uh, Hopefully, Jaron Duran comes back healthy again because he took a nice step forward when he was on the field. Uh, but yeah, otherwise, I, I don't know. <laughs> it's <laughs> I, I could see them having another 500-ish type season. Uh, obviously, a full off season to go, but um, they're yeah, it's. I, 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 they're not a team that right now I, I can mm. I, I would expect to take another uh, big leap forward okay. at least. How about you? 
Um, no, not particularly. I think that we probably want to see a little bit more from from the young guys moving up, and uh, they they wouldn't be a team that jumps out to me as like one that I was like super high on in the immediate future, uh, especially just considering where Baltimore's at, where Tampa Bay's at, where where Toronto's at, and I think I would similarly be higher on on the Yankees mm-hmm. next year. So I just think just given where if they were in the AL Central, which we're good to now, maybe I'd be a little more optimistic. Um, we got four teams that are having losing seasons in the AL Central. Uh, Cleveland, Detroit, the White Sox, and the Royals. Are you excited about any of them having either a bounce back year or just uh, maybe in the <laughs> ensuing years? Uh, I think the Guardians, the, the Guardians, I would be most optimistic about. Yeah. Just because the, the Central is so soft such a soft division um the the twins are a good team uh their their farm system is solid um i do i do like the farm system overall that the guardians have um, Mm -hmm. and they seem to be able to make moves to make or at least the front office does to get the most out of the resources that ownership gives them Uh, Mm -hmm. i think ownership is a an issue there where they just you know they're just not given uh sufficient resources to Mm um or to be able to you know sustain the the homegrown talent that they're able to uh bring in so that's that's a significant issue and is not that's not something that's ever, or, or not ever, but not something that seems like it's going to change anytime in the near future. But mm-hmm. um, that that's a team where I could see them taking taking a step forward uh, both both next year and you know looking out over the next uh, three to five year window. Yeah, Detroit is kind of a sneaky one. I would agree with you on Cleveland. Detroit is kind of a sneaky one to me because I do like some of the hitters. Uh, that are pushing up towards the upper levels. Like Colt Keith had a fantastic season. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Spencer Torkelson had a solid year, and maybe you can uh, see some improvement from him in the future. Riley Green seems to be like a solid, above-average, everyday type player now. Um, and, and I do think that their like system is improving. Uh, so it wouldn't be shocking to me if they were competitive in the future. Again, I don't know about the arms. Like Where are the arms going to come from? I think that's a probably a question that you have for most teams is, is what are they going to do about arms? It's just so hard to, if you're not a, like a super high spendy team and Detroit has been willing to spend in the past, it's just very difficult to build up a homegrown pitching staff. That's like consistently impressive. More teams than not can't do that. So that would be my question with them. But Compared to Chicago and Kansas City, I, I wouldn't surprise me if Detroit was more competitive um, sooner than those other teams. How about you? Yeah, yeah, I could see that with the Tigers. Yeah, I mean, like with the with the Guardians, I think you feel better about their um, pitching. Absolutely, development. You'll get a full season, you know, presuming health, but uh, from Gavin Williams going forward, um, there 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 are more reasons to be uh, I think optimistic about their pitching staff and then i think they have the farm system where if they need to um swing trades to um to bolster well you know whether it's their pitching staff or somewhere else in their Mm -hmm. lineup i think they have the components there to uh to be able to do that too yeah jackson job having a really strong season for the tigers i think is encouraging if they're able to 
to get you a few more arms around him that you can maybe feel comfortable about putting in the rotation in the future. That would that would really help. But man, 64 innings, 2.81 ERA, great strikeout to walk numbers for Joe. Uh, it was a good season for him. Yeah, especially I mean, the year before was like it was okay, but it wasn't mm. what you would maybe be expecting for, for the from number the three overall pick, yeah, third overall pick, you know. Uh, yeah, I think he's regained Marcello a lot of Meyer, his prospect Jordan, value. Yeah, Jordan Waller are on the board. Mm. Uh, I'm not saying necessarily that's uh, they were right to pick Joe, but <laughs> the based on what he how he's looked this season, uh, his his stock is clearly um, rising very mm. very quickly. Like e- e- we keep bumping him up in the top 100, <laughs> and we're just gonna have to bump him up again uh, when we do our our off season upstate because the the stuff is it was getting terrific mm. reviews early in the year and then just to see the amount of strikes that he's been able to throw this year is, is even more encouraging yeah all right let's move to the al west uh two teams here that qualify for this conversation would be the angels and the a's uh, i have to admit it's it's pretty hard for me to feel any sort of optimism for either of these organizations it feels like there's there's more painful years to come rather than than fun ones. Uh, I mean, especially for the A's, they're one of the worst teams in baseball. The farm system is, is not super encouraging. Uh, the Angels, like I imagine they're losing Otani this year. <laughs> it's basically Mike Trout, and we can't even count on Mike Trout being healthy at this point for a full season. Uh, yeah, they've taken a lot of players that they pushed really quickly to the bigs, but I just they've really struggled to build up a supporting cast for the better part of a decade now. Um, and I think all the teams in front of them, the Astros, Mariners, Rangers, like have better teams. Now I like a lot of the, the talent in the farm system surrounding them. It, it, I just, I wouldn't include the angels or A's as, as teams that I was excited for in the near future. Yeah. The A's, I don't know how you can have any optimism about that club when they just don't seem to, or obviously the ownership doesn't seem to care about the product on the field. Uh, the farm system is not great. Um, it's just tough to look out, certainly next year or even the next few years, and seeing how they put a competitive playoff caliber team on the field. And uh, for everything you mentioned about the Angels, you didn't even say how their farm system is uh, the worst in baseball, <laughs> too. So, um Maybe you're just being a, a nice guy. I mean, today, and they've consistently been there too. It's it's not like they're just bad right now. How how long have they been at the bottom of our our talent rankings? It's been several years now. Yeah, and and it's not you know Zach Nito is a good player. Nolan Shanwell, talk about polarizing <laughs> before. <laughs> um, he certainly fits that bill with a, a very extreme uh, skill set that he has. So. Um, We'll see. And, and Logan Ohapi, I think, is a, uh, you know, I, I think he's been a, a good player, but um, yeah, otherwise, there's just not a lot to be super excited about in their farm system. And, and too, like when we say like it's like a farm system is the worst in baseball or like 28th or 29th, doesn't mean there are no players yeah. in the organization who look like future big leaguers or even uh, potentially above average big leaguers but you could say that about every system Mm -hmm. in baseball and the other ones just have 
more and better yeah. <laughs> players uh, than them. But yeah, between yeah losing Otani, I don't know what's going on with Anthony Rendon right now. But he he's uh, not very optimistic about many things. It seems like <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> well, maybe as he gets uh, yeah. They, they tend to not injuries and degrading performance tend to not get better as you turn uh, into your mid thirties either. So yeah, yeah, not uh, not a lot of positive things to be on the outlook there going forward. All right, NL East, we've got uh, the Mets and Nationals who are solidly under five hundred now. The Marlins have kind of uh, scraped scraped by. They're um, five games up right now over 500. I don't know if that's a team that you would want to put into consideration for this as well. Um, Might make the playoffs this year. Yeah, I think they've got a decent shot to do that. Um, they've been really hot lately. Um, they've got some fun guys on both sides of the ball. Um, but Mets and Nationals, their, their farm systems are at least uh, a lot more exciting than some of the teams we've just recently spoken about. Um, I, I like both of their farm systems quite a bit. I think there's some impact talent at the top of both of them, even if maybe you don't have like crazy depth. Um, and the Mets obviously have an owner in place who's committed to giving resources to this team to win now, even if uh, obviously this year was pretty disappointing for for the outlay of spending that they, they had. But Mets and Nationals, um, where are you at with, with both of them? Yeah, I, th- I think between the talent that <clears throat> is still intact on the major league roster, uh, the, the owner who is a gazillionaire and is willing to spend uh, to seemingly do whatever it takes to win, um, and then you have David Stearns coming in. I think he's going to. Uh, I, I think he's just one of the best executives in baseball. I think he's going to make a lot of smart moves to put them uh to to manage the major league roster um better than is what has been happened um in recent years um and then i think the farm system is is good too i, I think they've shown that they've been able to um or, or at least in a, in a solid place I, I think they've shown that they've been able to um you know draft good good hitters uh jet williams obviously seems love like the, jet the latest in line there um internationally i think they've they've been bringing in some uh some pretty solid players too so i I think there's definitely reasons to um maybe maybe not quite as much as uh the padres as far as like unluckiness or uh or just randomness that explains their record uh, Certainly unlucky overall. with health overall, but I think, yeah, they were just probably not as good as you expect them to be across the board, really struggled early on. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this or was not a team that June, maybe. a year ago won 101 games, mm. right? Like, And, and it's still a lot of that core is intact. So I, I do expect them to turn things around. I'm not totally, like, I don't know what directions turns will take as far as, like, how much they're going to sell off from this team uh versus ba- balancing like 2025 and beyond versus trying to go yeah. for it more in 2024 uh, do you think do they think... should do you think they should be looking to trade pete alonso or would you try and uh win next year because he's a free agent in 2025 and so depending i guess on when you think uh is the right time to be competitive and maybe the answer is just you you have steve cohen you're going to try and be competitive every year 
Um, so that could be the case too. But where where do you fall on that? I imagine Pialanza's trade value is, is pretty high at this point. Would you try and cash in on some of that to maybe expedite the rebuild or or in, improve some of the depth of the farm system? Or how do you think that should be handled? Um, I would I would certainly explore it and yeah. see what the return is that you're going to get. Um, you know, Freddie Freeman I think is a bit of a different case, but like you know betting on a you know betting betting on a player like alonzo as a first baseman in his 30s uh i i think there are he he's been a great player but i'm not certain how well that that um that type of player is going to age and when Mm -hmm. it hits a cliff like (laughs) it's it, it could get yeah you might want to have a rough. prospect haul for it instead of having him in your lineup. Yeah, or even if it's not a necessarily just prospects, it could be. I mean, it, it could be young, like major league ready type mm-hmm. players. And I, but I think Stearns is um, has shown the judgment to be able to, um, you know, if if the right return mm-hmm. comes around, be able to to produce to, to produce it in a way that's going to, um, you know, still keep the. 2024 team competitive while making them better in the long term but um kind of wait to sure. see how that plays out in the offseason yeah absolutely all right and how about the nationals uh, pretty bad team this year uh, <laughs> obviously they, they got a haul of prospects in the one soto trade i think we're both pretty high on a lot of the prospects at the very top of their system uh it is a very top heavy system it's a lot of fun bats, Dylan Cruz, James Wood, Brady House. We have them number nine in terms of our farm system rankings, but um, need a lot of work on the major league roster still. So how how bullish or bearish are you on the Nationals? Um, yeah, I mean, they have, I think, Mackenzie Gore and C.J. Abrams, too, who are not, um, you know, don't factor into a prospect ranking, but I, I think are still yeah, young good, players that very you like. good young players. Uh, I think Hebrew Ruiz is somebody else who... Uh, you know, has been okay this year, but <clears throat> excuse me, somebody I think can take a step forward next year. It's it's definitely a very top-heavy farm system, um, mm-hmm. but I also like. I, I don't think they're going to be a playoff contender next year. Nor do I think the front office or anybody in the organization really has um, is is under the impression that 2024 is like the year they're going to take their mm-hmm. big leap forward. Um, but like, you know, Dylan Cruz is not super far away. James Wood is not far away. Um, I, I, I could see, I, I think the team will, there, there are reasons to be encouraged here, um, within the next three years Yeah, going forward. They're still going to have to make a lot of good decisions, um, in, as far as the uh, players are signing in, in the draft uh, internationally, uh, the trades they're going to presumably be making to enhance the rebuild and build out um, the farm system even more. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think this is a team that if, if they make those moves should be well positioned within a few years. But then there's also this big cloud of uncertainty of like, um yeah like Rizzo signed an extension but like how long is ownership gonna be there and then a new owner 
a new owner comes in, like what, <laughs> uh, what is going to happen? Because uh, mm. they're going to probably want to bring in their own people too. Yeah. Uh, a little bit longer for the Nationals. All right, moving to the NL Central, we've got the Pirates and the Cardinals. Um, everyone else above 500. Uh, fun teams. I mean, I'm I'm really excited at the the idea of maybe having the the Reds sneak into the playoffs. I don't know how likely that actually is, but they've been, I think, better than a lot of people expected them to be. Maybe maybe a little better. Oh, definitely, yeah. A little bit better than I expected them to be. Um, maybe quite a bit better than I expected them to be. A lot of their rookies have have really been fun to watch and just productive in general. But Pirates. And Cardinals, um, again, teams that have pretty solid farm systems right now. We've got the Pirates at number four overall. We have the Cardinals at 21. So it's not bottom of the barrel farm systems for either of these teams. And for one, you can make a case it's one of the better farms in the game. Uh, Obviously very odd to see the Cardinals having the season that they're having. Again, kind of like the Yankees, we just always expect them to be competitive and uh, getting into the playoffs. But where are you at with your optimism for these two clubs? Well, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't include the Reds in this, but where, where actually do you stand on Ellie De La Cruz right now? Because I mean, we were higher as, on Jackson Holiday, and I think the reasons that we are skeptical of Ellie De La Cruz are kind of like rearing their heads, and you're seeing like why there were concerns uh, about the approach. Um, he's not been a great hitter basically since the first several weeks that he was promoted and was super electric. So. I think he he will he's too talented to not make some improvements. I just don't know what the sort of baseline expectation for his offensive performance is going to be. Like the 34% K rate is concerning. Uh he's hitting 231 297 397 right now. Um I haven't seen him play too much defensively to to gauge like how good or bad that's been. Um but yeah, I mean I I think all the reasons that we were skeptical and that the polarizing profile was there. We've seen like both the pros and cons of that profile so far. Right. Yeah. It's just electric talent. He's got multiple 80 tools and he's still 21 years old, right? He's the same age as Mm -hmm. what Dylan Cruz, who's been like, okay, but not great in Mm -hmm. double a. Um, and I think we both love Dylan Cruz. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, oof. The I I do think he'll be able to still improve his. It, like it wouldn't be surprising are... to me if he had like a Bobby Witt Jr. sort of improvement after mm. reaching the majors. Like Bobby really struggled with his swing decisions early on. I think you saw some improvement with that this year. I still think like maybe there's some questions that he's not able to sustain that. But I I think it's a case of like same with Anthony Volpe, right? Like all these players are very young. Uh, it's their first exposure at the major league level. There's a lot they're going to need to do to adjust and adapt. Like, I I have more questions about the approach because we've always seen this at the minor league level, and it is such a, a long swing that maybe it's just easier for, uh, not a long swing, but like his levers are, are so long that maybe it's just easier to exploit some holes that that creates. So maybe he will just always be more of this like hot and cold type hitter. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think that my overall picture of Ellie has really changed too much over the last year, really. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely more red flags or, or things that could go wrong with him compared to Jackson Holiday, where I, I thought the just the OBP upside with Holiday is, is so much greater. But then 
there's like almost nobody in baseball who hits the ball <laughs> yeah. or as hard as Ellie De La Cruz does or who mm-hmm. can run or, um, you know, does, does some of the other things athletically that he's capable mm-hmm. of doing on the field. But the, the approach is definitely an issue. I, I also wonder too, like, like, is there some sort of underlying health issue that has maybe popped up there like I, I just sort of speculating at this point so it, mm-hmm. it might be nothing but um but the yeah the difference between when he first came up compared to now is uh uh pretty pretty stark <laughs> yeah i'm it, i'd say it's not super shocking to me that that's been the case it feels like young players come up pitchers have a period where they adjust and it, it, it feels like Ellie was never a hitter like Holiday that you feel really supremely confident in the swing decisions and just the, the plate discipline. Um, like like it, it's not surprising at all to me that pitchers have figured him out, and now it's up to Ellie to sort of make the adjustment in turn. Uh, I'm trying to pull up his uh, splits here just to see how drastic the the first few games were compared to lately. Uh, but I'm struggling to do that really quickly on on B ref. Yeah. Well, in so June apologies. he was hit in June he at 307, 358, 523. Yep. Um, and now, or at least second half numbers, uh, 179, 263, mm-hmm. 328. Yeah. Do you have Babbitt for that too? Because I imagine that the strikeout and walk rate was pretty consistent even when he was going well offensively. Yeah. So the difference in. Uh, Babbitt, first half, second half, first half, 441, second half, 266. So just like yeah. a little 175-point <laughs> yeah. swing there. I think that's the thing with, with players that you can't feel confident that you can bank some safe OBP based on their swing decisions. Like They're either going to have to have like elite angles or elite contact ability to have some sort of consistency, right? Like if your ball, if, if the balls in play just aren't falling and you're also not taking walks, like there's not a lot for you to fall back on. Um, so yeah, I'm, we'll see how he he improves and, and adjusts next year. He's he's quite young. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the so we're talking about what the Pirates, the Pirates and Cardinals, Pirates and Cardinals. Uh, I don't know where 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 are you at on the Pirates rebuild? Because it's been <laughs> they've been building for a while. Well, I can tell you that I wasn't too thrilled with their the way they handled skeins uh, initially, as we've talked about. I I don't I don't know. I have more confidence in the Cardinals being good than than the Pirates, just given track record and history and and how the Cardinals have been able to sort of I don't know if maximize is the right word, but get a lot out of their homegrown players, like kind of in the opposite way of the Padres. They seem to do a great job of of just adding these quality role players out of nowhere every year like i like the pirates farm system quite a bit more but like it wouldn't shock me if the cardinals were right back at it next year and competitive and i don't anticipate the pirates being ready to go in 2024 um yeah i'm, I'm fairly lukewarm on the pirates i guess i would say compared to some of the other teams that we've talked about although yeah. i like some of the players in the system but the fact that henry davis is graduated and doesn't seem like he's a catcher I, I think that I was probably a lot higher on Indy Rodriguez uh, a year ago at this time than I am now. Like, I just don't know who we're relying on in the system to sort of carry the next core. Like, I think they need a lot of improvement across the board. Yeah, pretty much. 
Yeah, and, and I think he could be again. Well, it's a bizarre shutdown of him that were of a player who I otherwise would have thought, oh, well, he can contribute in twenty twenty four. Yeah, potentially, but just I mean, the rest of that pitching staff is not great, <laughs> and then. It's not like the lineup is... I mean, if you keep having really good seasons from Bubba Chandler and Anthony Solomito, like, there are some guys, and I even like Jared Johnson quite a bit, too. Or Jared, or Jared Jones. Jones. Jared yeah. Jones, excuse me. Yeah, Jared Johnson is a Braves pitching prospect. But it sounds like a lot of their young pitchers have had good years. They're just still, like, I don't know when you expect them to, to be ready for the big leagues. Like, I think Paul Skeens is probably still the most big league ready of that group that I just mentioned, right? Although I like the talent of, of a lot of those pitchers. I mean, Thomas Harrington has had a good year. Like, there are some interesting arms here, but the Pirates don't have a great history of, of maximizing their homegrown arms. So I'd say I, I like the players, and I am waiting for the organization to, like, give me confidence that they can get the most out of them, if that makes sense. Well, and then I, I think the hitters, too, if you look at that. Hmm. I like Tamar Johnson, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> He's, uh, you know, I've, I've really liked him, but... Uh, like Nick Gonzalez, who who are the other? Who obviously they they use a very high draft pick on too. I don't know who are the other hitters that are coming through. Like you said, they just graduated Henry Davis and Andy Rodriguez, and I like you know I think there are things certainly to like with Andy Rodriguez, Henry Davis as a corner outfielder, especially. Uh, I think it's a lot more mm. concerning. So I, I just look up and down system of like where where are the big bats yeah that you can count on which is really for me what i what i look for especially in in a rebuild going you know like, like what the orioles are doing mm. right now or or what the cubs did when they built their you know their farm system with uh you know bryant and anthony rizzo and mm-hmm. um and all, all those players uh i just don't see just don't see the 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 same caliber of talent from the the hitters that that I would expect to have from a team that's been in this rebuild for such a long time. I mean, they they haven't made the playoffs since <laughs> what twenty fifteen. It's yeah. It's been I mean, the Pirates been have while. been perpetually rebuilding really in my lifetime, so it's it's not really too shocking. But I mean, maybe it's a case where a lot of these pitchers come up and they end up being quite good, and, and you're one of those teams where you don't have to worry about. Uh, going out and acquiring pitching I think that's still the hardest thing to find so uh, if if they do get good outcomes with these arms maybe you can build around run prevention uh, maybe a little guardians-esque then add a few hitters here and there but yeah there there are a lot of questions still that I would have Um, are we good on this division do we need more on the more on the cardinals and move Uh, on to the west yeah you, you like the cardinals chances to to rebound it, yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me at all if they did. Um, I think this division is always sort of in flux. There's no one dominant team that seems to be uh, just manhandling it like the Dodgers do in the NL West. Um, so yeah, I, it wouldn't surprise me. I don't know. I don't know if there's like an obvious next wave of, of prospects that I'm super high on um, coming to help reinforce the team, but I'd say just my my confidence overall in how the Cardinals seem to operate year in year out is, is mainly the bulk of my optimism here. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, if, if not necessarily next year, then looking out within the next few years, I, I would expect them to, yeah, 
I am really excited to see how they operate at the top of the draft this year since they're actually going to be picking up there. Since they haven't in forever, this will be like the first time since the 90s I think they've picked this high. So that'll be fun to see. Right. All right, moving out west, uh, the, the, Do- the Padres, excuse me, were the kind of the team that sparked this whole conversation. Uh, there are a few teams to pick from here. Giants right at 500 now, Padres three games under, and then the Rockies um, probably maybe in that A's phylum of team here at the very bottom of the division. Who do you like? I think you said you like both the Giants and the Padres moving forward, right? Uh, I like the Padres. I just brought up the Giants mm-hmm. <laughs> as a team that's in that like 500-ish ah. range where uh, I think probably the uh, – I would say the Giants fans are probably not thrilled with the <laughs> way the season is going. I think that's fair to say. Yeah, I would imagine so. I mean, they've also it seems like they've had to deal with a few off seasons where they were really hunting for some of the top guys uh, available and have just come up empty for a number of them, missing out on Judge. I mean, maybe they're happy they missed out on Carlos Correa given what's Correa, happened with him yeah. this year. But um, I mean, they've got Bryce Eldridge, so that's something to get you excited about. <laughs> it's gonna, it's, yeah, gonna take him a little bit longer to. They feel like a team that's kind of just in this sort of middle ground where they've been okay at the big league level the last few years. They haven't really been doing like this massive rebuild, um, but they're also they're just kind of in this weird middle middle ground. I think like their farm system is fine. There's there's not a ton that gets you super excited. Uh, I don't know. There wouldn't be a team that jumps to mind quickly for me to be thrilled about. Like I think. I think I'm much more excited about the D-backs and where they're at. I mean, a lot of that is Corbin Carroll. Um, yeah, I guess Giants versus D-backs over the next few years. Who who would you be more excited about? Hmm. Yeah, it's a tough division, too. I mean, you've got... Yes. With, with Anytime you have the Dodgers there, like, just mm-hmm. probably pencil them in for first place. Yeah, that's what we've learned. In the West next year. Um, <laughs> even with, you know, all their pitching... <laughs> uh, things that they've dealt with this year, but um, yeah. yeah, it's a tough division. Like, and I and again, like I think the Padres are gonna bounce back next year. But yeah, like you said, kind of like this middle ground organization. They were a 500 team last year. Seem like a they're gonna be right at 500 again this year. I could see that going forward again like Hmm. maybe like kyle harrison um you get a full season from him um you know maybe maybe he can take a big step forward for them next year like yeah i I don't know i i I could see them being a playoff contender next year but uh even though the padres have been worse this year in, in terms of record and certainly in terms of um uh, not meeting preseason expectations, I'd feel more mm-hmm. confident about the, the Padres next year than I would with the Giants. Yeah, I think I'm right there with you. Um, I mean, I like their recent draft. I like Walker Martin quite a bit. I like Bryce Eldridge more now than I even did uh, before the draft. I, I'm still pretty high on Carson Wisenhunt as well. So I like a few of their guys at the top of their system, but uh, the depth falls off pretty quickly, I think. And yeah, they're they're just kind of middle of the pack at the big league level, so I would I would be more excited about the Dodgers, the Padres, and the D-backs in this division than I would with the Giants. Although the Giants seem to be one of these teams that has this like like crazy luck that happens with them. 
Uh, I mean, their 2021 season was kind of wild seeing, seeing what they did. And then obviously they had the even year greatness in the early 2010s. So they always luck as far as just good, good luck for them or. Yeah, I think they would definitely be a team. Things have definitely broken their way. If you look at their playoff runs in the early 2000s, I mean, they weren't favored in all of those World Series. I think even 2014 maybe is the biggest one. Um, Things have just gone fairly well for them in their recent past. I mean, maybe you could say only being to the playoffs once since 2017. uh, That's kind of counterbalanced itself out, but they're, they're not a team that I'm like feeling bad for i would say just given some of their results <laughs> uh yeah i mean like those you know those buster posey madison bumgarner years are pretty well behind them i think it yeah at this point they definitely went it up was a while ago from that 20 what, i think the 2021 12, season two is just kind of lingering as well that year they really overperformed expectations i mean they were a really good team they weren't they weren't just purely lucky um but that one's kind of still sticks out as well winning the division that year no one really expected that they going from under 500 in the shortened season to 107 wins to basically just a 500 team the last two years is pretty wild yeah yeah i think that yeah they have good things at the very top of their farm system i don't know that it's necessarily like it doesn't necessarily stand out as above average to me even just looking at their very top prospects and i think their depth falls off pretty quickly um once you get outside their top 10 or or even Hmm. even before you get to the end of their top 10 yeah all right so we've we've kind of gone through each division if there's like a single team that you're most optimistic for i guess let's just say for next year would it be the padres or someone else because i think for me it, it probably is just the padres yeah yeah i would say the padres too just based yeah. on based on the roster that they have intact yeah. i think there's got to be moves that they make to um upgrade in a lot of spots but um mm-hmm. i think they're the uh they're, they're the best bet to take a, a leap forward next year yeah i feel pretty confident that they're not going to go winless in extra inning games and play like a 25 percent winning team in one run games like even if they basically just brought back every single person, I, I feel confident they would be better. But I think it's a great situation for, like, if they do change GMs or they do change managers, I think it's a great situation for whoever ends up stepping in there. Well, Preller, in, Preller has burned through a lot of managers, so maybe maybe not a great situation for a manager for your job security. But I do agree that I think it's a good situation in general to, like, be in a place to win. And I also think, too, like, San Diego... It's the only it's the only sport in town. It's a phenomenal ballpark. The environment there has been phenomenal all season. I think they're third in attendance this year. When they oh, yeah, they've again, been packing it. They've been extremely disappointing. So like the fact that they are just making an effort to win, I think goes a really long way. Shocker, like trying to win and bringing in stars makes your your ballpark fun to go to and fun to watch your games. Like I'm curious to see how much the fans will or won't penalize them next year for this disappointing year. But I feel like the fact that they're putting a strong product on the field and attempting to win has made that just a phenomenal baseball city. And I love it. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a fun place to watch a game. Well, mm-hmm. maybe not this year if you're a 
Padres fan, but I think if they're, uh, if someone winning, asked me yeah. this the other day. My, my brother asked me this the other day what my favorite park was that I've been to, and I put Petco right at the top. What What is your top park? Hmm. That's a good. Question. I haven't been to all of them, so that's not me saying this is the best park in baseball, but it's definitely my favorite one that I've been to. Just the weather, the sight lines, the backdrop, the the park itself has a lot of good character. I feel like the food there is a lot better than a lot of the parks that I've been to. Uh, just, it kind of hits, checks all the boxes. It's not a, it's not a dome, which domes, I think always, you kind of have to take off a lot of points for them just because it doesn't feel as fun when you're kind of outside. And granted, some, some teams are situated in areas where you probably want a dome in the summer, but it's, it's just phenomenal all around for me. It's an 80. Yeah. Yeah, I might put them up there too. I mean, I love Wrigley. Like Wrigley, Fenway are great just for like their old school mm. feel to it. But then like the actual act of sitting in a seat <laughs> at Fenway Park that was built over a hundred years yeah. ago. For you get put in a time machine and that's awesome initially, ago. and then in the seventh inning you realize why they had seventh inning stretches. <laughs> yeah, I agree with like, you. Oh, I can't see that side of the <laughs> field because there's a giant beam in front of me um oops <laughs> yeah prioritizing um, sight lines seems like it should have been discovered a little sooner than it was maybe but you, i guess you had to actually hold up the stadium and so you needed some things to do that so architecture and engineering has i guess come a long ways too <laughs> yeah but petco is tough to be as far so as yours the, is petco too just, we can't have the I same mean, just one for, it's tough to beat the weather there it's not the trop overall the trop i will not i will not miss the trop i i joke about the trop but i do love the trop uh because going to amateur games there is phenomenal for the the ac and the logistics of not having to deal with weather delays in florida so when there's a packed amateur schedule of of showcases and workouts it's nice to know that it's everything's going to go on time so i i very much appreciate the trop even if i understand why people want a new park there in st pete (laughs) which they're going to get yeah cool uh ben i think that's all i had for today do you have anything else before we sign off and get out of here uh no it was good yeah that was fun fun podcast looking forward to the playoffs i think tonight i actually might be able to get to nationals park to maybe see ronald acuna get his 40th home run i was i was crossing my fingers the other day that he wouldn't uh wouldn't homer in yesterday's getaway game uh, against the phillies in atlanta or in cobb county i should say but I might, I might have to get there and hope that I can see some history. I think that would be a blast. You think it'll steal three bases for you? Uh, I mean, I can't be that selfish. It would be tremendous. That would probably be the coolest game I've ever been to if that happens. But you can hope, <laughs> I guess. The, how many games? The... How many? <laughs> I'm trying to see how many games this year he's actually stolen three bags. Let me pull that up really quick. But I didn't mean to cut you off. What were you saying? Yeah, no. If he, stole, if he had a home run and stole three bags to get to 40-70. It would be tremendous. I mean, the other day he hit two homers, so I guess he, he technically could have got close to a three-homer game. How many games do you think he's stolen three bags this year? Zero. One. One. He has okay. one game. It was April 22nd against the Astros. And then he also only has nine games with multiple bags, which is kind of surprising. I would have guessed more than that. I mean, he has 67, so... Yeah, I guess I was just wrong to have, to have thought that. <laughs> All right. Well, that'll wrap it up for us today. Uh, we'll be back next week with more. Um, 
yeah, anything to plug, I guess. Last thing for, for you, Ben, if there's anything you want to mention before we get out of here, but this was fun. Uh, no, we always uh, appreciate the ratings interviews on uh, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. So uh, we'll read them and, and appreciate the, uh, um, the, the ratings. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you guys next week. So long, everybody. Take care.